we're talking about a like a strategy to manage how insecure our safety and connection in the world is. Mm-hmm. So when people when people come to me and they're hardened by life, right, in all the ways that people are or have fixed position, instead of saying to them, you know, oh, that's your ego, I really listen and feel into the fact that they have learned, we have learned to hold ourselves because we live in a world of a scarcity of safety and connection. And when we focus more on giving and demonstrating that safety and connection, people don't need those strategies anymore. They will stop doing it. It's much better to have connection than it is to hold ourselves rigidly. You know, so my focus is really on demonstrating and showing people in a felt sense, having them feel connected. Welcome to the Living and Leading with Emotional Intelligence podcast by Emotional Intelligence Magazine. Emotional Intelligence Magazine is a one-stop resource for anyone looking to learn more about emotional intelligence. In addition to articles, videos, and recommended books to help you develop and expand your EI, EIM Plus, as it's known for short, offers a platform for EI coaches and specialists so they can connect with individuals who are ready to take their life or business to the next level. Learn more by visiting ei-magazine.com. That's ei-magazine.com. Or follow us on Instagram at the underscore ei underscore magazine. You can find these links and more in today's show notes. I'm your host, Brittany Nicole, and today I have the pleasure of introducing you to Blaze Kennedy. The more I got to learn about Blaze, the more there were so many just honestly mind-blowing parallels between his life and mine in regards to the time in our life where we started to address our trauma and what that allowed for us by addressing that trauma, by, as he says, softening ourselves and becoming curious and intrinsically motivated to discover more and heal our own personal wounds and trauma. Blaze's work is a result of his own personal transformation, which he talks more in depth about, that began in 2010. Interestingly enough, right around the same time that I was going through this similar transition. He checked into a drug rehabilitation center and at the age of 24 years old and after many years of avoidance, struggle, and difficulty, Blaze was finally ready to face reality. After five months of treatment, Blaze saw tremendous benefits in every area of his life and experience and he left the treatment center with one question, how far and how deep can I take this? And today, he helps other people connect with themselves so that they can find fulfillment in life, understanding, purpose, and just all-around connection with life and consciousness and others. So I am so overjoyed to bring Blaze onto this show so he can share his insight, his energy in and of itself, I find to be extremely therapeutic. So without further ado, let me welcome Blaze Kennedy. 
Blaze, welcome to the Living and Leading with Emotional Intelligence podcast. It is truly a pleasure to have you on. After hearing your interview, I believe it was Michael Unbroken. Is that right? You just touched my heart. You really did because you speak so much truth and you just have a presence about you that is, gosh, it's hard to put into words. It's like one of those things you just feel from other people, Um, but you just have such a presence or an energy that just screams service to me. That's what I get. When I see you, when I hear you, I just see this is a person who is selfless and is just here to serve and uses the story of your life to share. And in that alone is a service, in my opinion, because I could relate to it. And I'm sure a lot of people listening uh, will be able to relate to it. So before we begin, if you wouldn't mind just kind of introducing yourself in your own way to our listeners. Well, thank you. Um, service, definitely, uh, is resonant. I, I don't know about selfless, but that's something we can explore later. What does it mean to be selfless? What is the root? Why would someone serve? Um, I'm 37 years old. Uh, the first 24 years of my life were uh, pretty ignorant, normal level of ignorance. The last 13 have been and radically transformative and productive, been a real adventure, um, a a conscious, self-reflective, engaged adventure. I have two kids, I have two daughters, I'm married, and I am a participant in the world um, and deeply informed by two things. Um, Excuse me. Um, Both my, my experience with trauma in my own life, my understanding of trauma, therapy, uh, and they, they, they sort of healing path, and also deeply influenced and in love with the the singular search for meaning and consciousness and truth. Um, and we can talk more about what that what I mean by that later. But often accessed through self inquiry or self reflection or meditation or a much more personal relationship with God or the divine. So it's these two things that really inform my life, and um, it's both the the difficult 24 years of my life and the last 13, which is my path. My path is one of participating in the world uh, and working through it, really working through it. That in the... <laughs> I, I really do, you know, I really need to rename this podcast to Living and Leading with Spiritual Emotional Intelligence because I've noticed there's a trend with the latest podcast where spirituality and that connection to whatever you want to call it, source, God, universe, everybody has their own name for it. But um that has really been the pivotal pivotal moment in my life where I took all of these rational things and there was just something missing. And then I added that spiritual element to it, which made all the difference. So, and another thing that's kind of funny, which I'm just now learning, hearing you say it now, is you said the first 24 years of your life 
for mine, it was the first 23 years of my life before I started on this journey and I'm almost 35. So to see these parallels um, is just really amazing and surreal for me in a very selfish way. Uh, <laughs> but if you wouldn't mind, because we all are unique, we all have our own stories of self-discovery. Would you mind sharing a little bit of, of your journey and what that was like for you? You mean the the first 24 years part of the 13 or both? Um, yeah, thank you for clarifying. So I guess we can do both. Like start with what happened in your life that kind of led you to waking up or seeing that moment of change or I hate to define it, right? Because it's it's unique to everyone. But what led to today? Yeah, I can I think I can work with that question. So the first thing is that I when I was a kid, I didn't have aspirations to do anything um, outside of the mainstream. I wanted to be successful within the paradigm that I was given. I want to be an athlete, or I wanted to be a musician, or I wanted to be an academic, or I wanted to write books, or I wanted to be a whatever. I I wanted to have success. I wanted really to be excellent within the framework that I was given. And I was not able to achieve that. This is sort of one of the primary um, challenges of my life is I was not able to have a satisfying path of excellence. It doesn't mean that I didn't have you know, positive experiences in all those fields, but I never felt sort of good enough or that I could sustain the motivation. It, it just wasn't my path. And um, I actually became quite frustrated in my life as a result of this. Um, there was just a gap between the sort of person that I wanted to be and what I was. And my culture and my culture and my world, there was no frame for what to do about that other than to sort of work harder or, you know, try again. There was no sense of working on one's motivation or inner life, or any understanding of how people connect with themselves, connect with their motivation and express that into the world. There was no real uh, reflection on that. Uh, and one of the main things that happened to me sort of as a as a challenge to this is that my father died when I was a child. I was just about to turn um, 13 years old and he died. And he had a lot of similar challenges in his life that I had that I that I was that I'm speaking about, finding meaning, excellence, uh, but also uh, having money, being in good relationships. Uh, so what I found was that, you know, after my father died, I had a, you know, I dealt with it the best that I could at the time, but I found myself really repeating and living through the same challenges that my father had and having really no new insider solution. It's like being destined to live out the same problems that I've already experienced and I've already witnessed in my father. I had problems with drugs. Uh, and this is ultimately what kind of got me free. But as I was turning in my 20s, I started to really question uh, many things about the way the world was, about the way that my culture functioned. And I started to get a break uh, where I realized that it maybe, maybe my culture, maybe the world that I live in was not as healthy and functional and intelligent and rational and all of these things that I thought it was. And this gave me a huge break because instead of me being the problem, 
I was able to recognize that the education system and the, the culture more broadly was not the source of health and well-being. And so this gave me a break, but it didn't give me, I didn't learn any skills as to how to improve or heal or work with that in any way. So I continued to struggle. Um, I didn't have a path and I, I just sort of got deeper and deeper into drug use. Eventually I got sent to a treatment center because I got really stuck. I got really in trouble when I was 24. And at the time I thought I sort of had two attitudes to it. One, um, through some really luck intervention, divine intervention, whatever you want to call it. I met people who were interested in spirituality and I started to think, well, maybe this is something that I could do because drugs certainly are not spirituality. Drugs are not a meaningful path. They're a dead end. So I started to have some insight about, oh, maybe there is another way. Maybe there is a path of, um, excellence and self-discovery that I can go on that will that will be meaningful. At the same time, I sort of felt like I'd failed everything. I had, you know, I didn't know how to do that. I had sort of baggage accumulated from years and years of avoidance and sort of felt sense of failure. Um, but I went to treatment and I remember thinking, I've wasted my whole life. And what I was really shocked to find that when I got to treatment was at first I hadn't, I was 24 and that's like I'd barely gotten started in my life. That became really clear when I saw other people who were in recovery who were in their 50s or 60s and were just figuring this out. And I thought, man, I had my whole life ahead of me. I had it backwards. And the other thing is I loved treatment. You know, it was, I'd taken psychology in university and I thought, oh, maybe that's really interesting to me. But psychology in university at the university level is kind of talking about people's other people's ideas and concepts. And that didn't have any juice for me. It was just, it was just repeating what other people had thought. But being in therapy, really being in the process of people sharing and being forced to, asked to, invited to share honestly, you know, made me feel so alive. And, you know, I found it, first off, very useful for myself. But more than that, it was the first time I felt like, well, this is a real a real area of interest that I can really sink myself into. I was fascinated by it. Um, and once I became fascinated by the process, both of myself and other people, I really stopped having problems because the in, in inner work, all you have to do is be with what's true. You don't have to make the truth be different. In fact, the more you try to make the truth the different, the harder you'll be, harder it will be. So all you have to do is be willing and curious enough to be with what's actually happening. That's the nuts and bolts of it. And I found that what that meant is that I couldn't really fail at it. You know, if you're if you want to play chess or you want to be an athlete, there can be somebody faster than you. You can get injured. You know, there's there's always something. There's always competition. But in personal work, there's really no competition. You can't lose at it. There's no opponent. Um, and I just found myself extremely motivated and feeling like there was nothing that could stop me. So I, I inherited this real passion from going to treatment and sort of discovered something that wasn't available. And nobody I know was in therapy or 
had really ever really exposed me to that, and I probably wouldn't have been ready for it. Um, but when I went to treatment, you know, I fell in love with it. And from there, you know, I got out of treatment and I did the recovery program that I was that was given to me, and I really enjoyed it. But I always felt like it was a temporary; it just wasn't enough for me. It just inherently, I didn't feel satisfied enough. So I did that for about two years, and then I moved on to I got really involved in meditation. I got really involved in diet, uh, and eventually I found sort of body-based therapeutic modalities, like you could call it somatic therapy, and really, really fell in love with that. So I, I started to, um, I had sort of two passions at that point. One was on meditation and on the teachings surrounding meditation, most likely, or most importantly, self-inquiry, and I can tell you what I mean by that, and the other around processing trauma, right? In in the recovery world, trauma is... Um, I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's interacted with quite mentally, like you 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 tell your story, but in somatic therapy, it's a, it's really informed by how trauma functions, and it's about feeling your nervous system, feeling your body, and allowing your nervous system to complete overwhelming and incomplete experiences. So that I had these two sort of branches of my life: one is meditation and sort of inquiry into the nature of reality and all the wonderful things that I was beginning to experience and I was hearing from teachers. And the second was really digging into all the stored energy in my body from the past. For example, um, you know, the death of my father for like a decade, I sort of thought, oh, I got over that, right? Like I, I don't know, I, I moved on. But I was shocked to find out that that's not how it works, that, that when I started to really feel my body, um, I, I was blown away by how much emotion I'd been storing. Like I started to have feelings that were so intense and it was like they'd been stored in my body since I was 13. And once I recognized this is what was happening, I was thinking like, well, how much, you know, how much can I feel? How far can I take this? So these were my two um, primary doors. And this is the work that I do now professionally is I help people make sense of both um, trauma in the body and the felt sense of connection and relationship and consciousness as a singular uh, overarching always present force in reality wow that's that's beautiful <laughs> the way that you talk about how you enjoyed therapy and being in treatment I don't know how many people actually share that with you, right? And so what do you think, and I'm, I'm, I hate to say like, or ask you this because I know you can't speak for anybody but yourself, but do you feel like there's like, what prevents people from having that experience? Because you're not saying it was easy. You're just saying that it was a release, right? Like it, it wasn't super easy for you, was it? No, I mean, it was, it's not about being easy. I mean, right. I don't even know what the word easy would mean in the context of being in therapy or being in treatment. What the best that I can describe it for myself is that my motivation outweighed all mm -hmm. of the challenge. Like that was never 
uh, imbalance between my motivation and the challenge. And I think this is what happens to people in lots of fields, fields that I've had a lot of trouble in. I mean, if you are an Olympic athlete or you play the violin or you, uh, I don't know, a marathon runner, you must have a motivation that is stronger than the challenge of it. And, you know, I wanted all those things. I wanted to have a motivation that had, uh, that was stronger than the challenge for so many things in my life. And then suddenly I just found this was it. Like I couldn't, like the, everything felt like it was good for me. That's just how I would describe it. Everything felt like it was good for me. It didn't matter how hard. In fact, the harder it was, the more I felt like this is good for me. And in terms of what other people experience, I mean, um, I, I, I can't, I can't speak at all for them. But I do. What I would say is that this motivation that I discovered can be supported. It absolutely can be supported. There are many, many ways in which we can be either inspired to feel it or directly be taken, supported to feel the place inside ourselves where we have it. Mm. And there's lots of variety in that. Um, But supporting people's motivation is absolutely something that can be done. I can, again, I want to say this a lot and I don't mean to sound like a parrot, so I apologize. But so many things you say resonate with me even to this day, because I'm still processing things myself. And I am asking almost for whatever needs to happen to happen, no matter how challenging it is. Am I asking for something that is painful? No, but if it has to be, then yes, right? It's I want to do whatever I need to do in order to heal and be a better person and be a better servant to other people, whatever that means. And I feel like that's kind of where you're going, but I like the, I like how you talked about, you know, athletes or people that have a specialty. It's not easy. You have to work really hard, but the intrinsic motivation fuels you. And it's, it's like a driver in a way. Um, Gosh, there's so many directions that I can, can go I, with this. Can I add one thing? Yes, please. So if you if you are an athlete or you do something that's challenging, like let's say you want to swim across the English Channel, you have to go and get after that challenge. You almost have to create it. I mean, if you're mm-hmm. in a sport or you're a firefighter or something like that, so you could say it comes to you. It's You're responding to your the role that you have in the world, but often people do extreme things. They have to go towards them. The challenge is they just existed in my body and mind. Like I didn't, I wasn't adventure seeking. I mean, that's part of it is the desire to take on hard things, but the reality of what it was like for me, what it has been like for me to just feel myself is Mm -hmm. extreme. Like the, the amount and consistency of pain and and difficulty and distress trauma that i held in myself was so far beyond what i could have contemplated when i started this journey i had no idea i just thought you know i was a, a loser or something like that i just thought there was something defective about me i didn't understand but the 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 difference between the the reason why i had so many challenges is because i was holding a lot of pain 
And again, I didn't have to go out towards that. All I did is I just made a commitment that I want to, I want to live my, I want to live in my body. I want to be. So I, I, I kind of came towards myself and found the challenges rather than having to go and find them somewhere. They just, it was shocking right. to me how much uh, challenge and, and pain there was in my body. So that that's the only thing that separates it from being an athlete is that, that it's not a, it's not an external added mm. condition. It's just the reality of what it's like to be me. And as I realized that I just really wanted to be me. I just really wanted to, to live my life and be authentic to myself. And I just didn't turn away from that, you know? And so in some ways I made extra efforts uh, to, to really dig in or go towards that and was motivated to do so. But it just comes up all the time in life. Like it's really hard after a while to avoid. Yeah. Cause you can't run from yourself. So you bring yourself everywhere. And so every situation you greet it with whatever you're dealing with inside yourself. Right. There's a, there, there's a just one more. There's an episode of this of Seinfeld where George says something like, you know, all my instincts are totally wrong. And then they sit at their coffee shop and they said, what if you just did the opposite of everything that you would ever normally do? And he does. And his life takes off. And it's, it's hilarious. A great, it's a funny episode, funny joke. But wow. that's what it was like for me when I looked at if when I was able to evaluate what have I been doing when my life has not been going well. Mm just that I was avoiding it. Like the the recognition of how much I had been avoiding myself, I just started to say, like, what would happen if I just did the opposite? Like, what would happen if I didn't? And to have the power to consistently change my life just by facing things the way they are was more power than I'd ever experienced in my life. I hadn't felt empowered before. I hadn't felt like I had any kind of strength where I could make things happen. So the the realization that all I need to do is just like feel myself. That's all. That's it. There's no, there's no external uh, condition that I have to meet. That was, that made my life a lot simpler in a lot of ways. Yeah. Let's talk about the whole avoidant avoidance component of this, because um I know we don't really know each other <laughs> beyond this conversation, but I like to tell people when they say, you know, tell me about yourself. I'm like, well, I'm a, I'm a recovering miserable person. And that's what I was. I was so angry and rageful and hateful and bitter. And I blamed everybody around me. And I just, I was running from myself and, and, convincing myself that everything and everyone around me was the problem. And anytime someone said something that was the truth, I would become hyper offended and I would bark back at them and, you know, how dare they? And now that I'm progressing in my journey, I see so many people kind of doing the same thing. In fact, our culture, I know you said you're from Canada. I'm in the U.S., but I, I see our culture in the U.S., it's like, don't offend me. And if if you say something that offends me, then you're a bigot or you're intentionally trying to offend me. And so it makes it increasingly difficult to build that connection and have those conversations that need to be had 
because so many people have trauma that's been unaddressed. So it's one person triggering another person's trauma, which triggers their trauma. And it's just this feedback loop of unconscious trauma. You know, how do we start to open up to have these conversations, to shift that perspective, to look within, because it seems that we're on a bullet train going so fast and it's really hard to stop. We're just wrapped up into this world of do, 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 go, go, go. Like you were saying, success, we're chasing something. But are we chasing or are we running, right, from something? Absolutely. And so there's a lot... Uh, There's a lot. I know I'm notorious for loaded questions. The, the, the first part, though, is when we talk about trauma and like it is a systemic problem. I have trauma. You have trauma. It's true. Individuals have trauma. Individuals have responsibility. But the further I go, the more I trauma and our responses to trauma I see as being systemic. So, for example, if I look at why I avoided and the strategies that I used, a lot of that is a reflection of what was available to me. Like if we just define or slow down and go, what is, what is trauma? What, what does it mean when we have pain? For me, it means two things. One, that we have overwhelming experiences that we can't be with. This is the primary thing. So from grief, anger, sadness, all the fear, all the feelings, they overwhelm us. So we leave ourselves or we freeze around them or we we have all these strategies to manage our personal pain. But the second part of trauma is not only is it overwhelming, but there's not enough relationship or connection or intelligence that can see and receive us in our environment. So one part of the trauma is that it's I'm holding it because it's overwhelming to me. But another part is like what what resources is there? What emotional intelligence, what capacity, embodied capacity is there in my life through my whole developmental process to hold me when I'm having feelings? So I have young children, I have young daughters. And what you see with children is they can't, self-regulate. They can't hold their own feelings. They're completely dependent upon parents to help them co-regulate, which means to help them feel their feelings, take these big waves of energy as their nervous systems are growing, and and um, build in the capacity for more energy to pass through them. So from the beginning of our life, our emotional state is is completely dependent upon relationship. Not only is it dependent upon relationship, but it's actually created for relationship. Nobody gets angry or feels sad for themselves. The purpose of having feelings is to be in relationship, to be connected. So we have this developing system, which is inherently overwhelming, which requires relationship, and that relationship not only needs to be like physically there, but needs to be present with us emotionally. We need to actually be able to feel connection in that as well. So this is the environment that optimally, I believe, human beings would grow into. So when we have a culture that does not support us in that, I think it's it's very it makes perfect sense to me that myself and you and many other people feel angry or mistrustful 
or project all kinds of things on others. Because over and over, we've had the experience of a lack of safety, a lack of attunement, a lack of connection. So after years and years of this system not functioning well in ourselves, we don't know how to orient to it as adults. So how do we start to, your question was, how do we start to, how do we fix this? Well, you could say, you know, become personally motivated, read some books, listen to a podcast, just dig in and figure it out for yourself. But that doesn't, that's just not a realistic solution because this is not an individual. This is a problem not solved by individuals. I mean, if you looked at my story and myself, I speak about being very motivated as an individual, but they put me in a facility with like 80 other addicts and they forced us to talk about what we had in common. They they made the solutions relational. Throughout the whole recovery process, relationship, sharing with others in meetings and having sponsors, having uh, groups of people that you talk to, the primary mode of, of healing in recovery is through communication and being seen and received by other people. So this is... Uh, fundamental is that there needs to be a space, a group, an environment that supports healing and awakening, rather than to preach to individuals that they need to do something different. But we don't have these structures in our culture. They don't really exist yet. I can name recovery as one, but I would also, in my experience, describe its limitations. It's not particularly body-based. It's not, it wasn't designed to be trauma-informed. It, it, it actually was created before the word trauma even existed. It doesn't take into consideration attachment or the development of the nervous system or the felt sense of connection. So we have a challenge to create uh, an organism, a culture that actually can support and integrate people. And I believe that when you, I've seen over and over, when you place people in intelligent cultures, they learn they fit in. They they learn how to use their own experience. They become more willing. They become more motivated. They become more honest. They take more responsibility. In a healthy system, individuals with trauma start to act more healthy because it's available, because the resource, the opportunities for, there, for them to participate is there. So my emphasis and my, my drive, my work in the world is to create create a healthy culture which can absorb people who don't know about this, uh, who can be taught and mentored, who can find peer support, who can have friends, who can be supported through a long process of learning how to actually be with themselves. Because for me, being with yourself and being with other people fit hand in hand. They're the same thing because we are designed to be in relationship. That's the purpose of our inner world. Mm, there's a lot here. I think it really takes someone that again has done that inner work themselves to, I mean, we can have conversations, we can talk about things, but let's talk about ego. Let's talk about ego and true self, if that's okay. Sure. Because for me, when I got into this space of emotional intelligence and effective communication about 10 years ago, 
I just thought I knew everything. I had it figured out. I had the answers. And so I was really just regurgitating information that I had read, that I had heard, that I had applied. It worked for me. And so I deemed that as the way without realizing that, no, everybody has their own way and that I needed to let go of that construct of this being the way and getting upset with other people. And now I'm realizing that the beauty and the transformation comes when I don't have an attachment to the outcome of myself or other people. And I just step into the situation as an empty vessel there to discern the truth in that moment and allow people to discover their truth themselves. And what was preventing me before was ego. And I wasn't helping. I thought I was helping. And maybe I helped a little bit for some people. But I think it, it the number of people that are in the ego state and in trauma state, which I still have a heavy ego that I'm working on, right? But I think it's just, it's so hard for us to step into our true self to be that vessel, to really go with the flow of things, to discern because we we struggle to sit in that stillness and discern, right? So how do you see this transformation taking place? Because it just seems so overwhelming to me. Yeah, so... We'll just start, if I follow up and ask you a little bit about your story, you said, I was in the state where I was regurgitating information, and then I you learned to let go of that and relax, and you became more open. That's a beautiful story. And my question is, how did it feel? Like, what was the feeling that took you, or what was your experience that took you from being closed to more open? Was it a pleasant journey? Was it, how would you describe Mm. the realization process? So I fought it for a very long time, that switch. Intuitively, it was what I always wanted to do, I think, to be more open. But I always felt like I had to stay within the box that I was given, right? If you go outside of this, then people might think you're weird. Or what if you go into a situation and you don't have a structure and you know there was all this fear involved it took a lot of i guess you would say meditative experiences insight that i i don't feel like came from me and i guess we could argue you know if we all carry the source within us it does come from us but not our ego self as we identify as mm-hmm. um but it just kind of was like stronger than the fear it was it was that intuitive no this is what is right this is the truth and and i use right very loosely because i don't like to put things in categories but it just felt right to me and so i just took a chance and when i did it the way people received me was instantaneously different and beautiful and magical and I'm like, okay, let's try it again. You know, there was still, there would still be the nerves and the fear, but it was just seeing that. I don't know if that answered your question, but that's a, yeah, it's a beautiful answer. So I, out of that, I hear a couple themes that I would have 
I would we could build on as an answer is first that most of the what we call them egoic positions that we take are are the ways that we create safety in our lives. You said, what if I show up in the situation and I don't have it all together? What if I'm vulnerable or I'm yeah. difficult feelings come up or I make a mistake? It's not it's well like, received. People think I'm crazy. People think right. I'm woo-woo, all this right. stuff. Yeah. We're talking about a like a strategy to manage how insecure our safety and connection in the world is. Mm. So when people when people come to me and they're hardened by life, right, in all the ways that people are or have fixed position, instead of saying to them, you know, oh, that's your ego, I really listen and feel into the fact that they have learned, we have learned to hold ourselves because we live in a world of a scarcity of safety and connection. And when we focus more on giving and demonstrating that safety and connection, people don't need those strategies anymore. They will stop doing it. It's much better to have connection than it is to hold ourselves rigidly. And, you know, so my focus is really on demonstrating and showing people in a felt sense, having them feel connected. And people, like, what does it mean to feel connected? Let me talk about that as well. When you feel connected, holding yourself in a contracted or rigid way becomes a barrier to this wonderful, life-affirming thing, this felt sense of connection. And so we learn, not necessarily immediately, but we learn to relax into it and accept the nourishment of, of this aliveness and mutuality rather than the safe, the limited safety of being separate and being right and being all of these qualities. So, if, so in your story, part of the way I hear you talking about it is through meditation. And that's absolutely true is that some of this information, but also sense of safety and the capacity to relax, the, the openness absolutely can come through a personal experience of meditation or all the different spiritual breakthroughs in which we can have, which can guide us to let go of these structures. I mean, classically, that's how it is taught in where they teach meditation. This is what they teach. They say, look, if you're hardened and egoic and you just sit there and you do these, you focus on these things and you do these things, you will soften. You will just soften and soften and soften and soften forever. And that's been the focus. In the West, we have a much more of a focus on relationship and in the therapeutic modalities upon trauma. And the, the understanding is not that it's the personal, it's the emphasis for me is not as much on the personal relationship with the divine as a source of relaxation. That's that's half of it. The other half is that safety and these higher states of consciousness and this information can actually come from you and I being together. Like when we sit together, we can have spiritual experiences, which are a felt sense of connection. And I think this is somewhat new for human beings, that we don't have to run off to a monastery or a cave or to become a monk to have um, sort of a deep breakthrough, but we can actually have it through recognizing that we're here together and communicating. So um, how do we do this? One is we do need we do need to teach people how to relax their focus, 
and how to feel into all the depth of their self beyond their thoughts and feelings and sensations as spiritual traditions have been teaching for thousands of years. And we need to people to be able to relate to each other from these open spaces and learn how to say the things that you've said to support the movement and the dissolution of our separateness through communication, through receiving each other, through using our energy and emotion in the way it was designed, which is to be expressed. How do you personally reach people? You know, you talk about people being hardened and rigid. And I do think that being around them, bringing our energy, there's something that we can't explain in words. There's that knowing, you know, just that feeling like you talk about being around people. There's that sense, but the people that are really rigid and have so much fear of being open. Do you find that they come to you that they're receptive or they just kind of have to go through some more trials in life to be broken down to the point? And I say broken down because that's the way it was for me. You know, I felt like I had to be constantly broken over and over and over again to get tired enough to say, I give up, I surrender. Um do you feel like those people are reachable or it just, you know? <laughs> well, like I am, I am one of those people and I have engaged in a process of softening for a long time. So I, I, I can't imagine someone being unreachable. And I think that what, what I would emphasize is when I talk to someone like this through my life, through the last 13 years of my life specifically, when I talk to people who can't see me or feel me or who get really angry or who uh, break connection or who are hyper-dependent and don't give me enough space or whatever, all the things that people do in relationship, it triggers me, right? The last 13 years of my life have been realizing all the ways in which I don't feel safe, in which reactivity is stirred up in me by meeting people who are non-perfect, right? Mm -hmm. Which is pretty much everybody. In doing that, I am able to soften whether or not the other person does for a number of reasons. One, because I have learned the skill to recognize what's happening for me, relax into it, speak it. But I also have relationships in my life to process all of these things with. And something that became really important for me to realize, it's definitely progressive, is that when I have a problem with you, the like that the actual problem that I'm having is always a product of my past. It's not a product of being with you. It's hard to recognize that often because the charge or the felt sense of whatever it is, righteousness, indignance, fear, uh, otherness, whatever it is that comes up in us can feel so strong and real that it's like this person didn't invite me to their birthday party. You know, this is why I have charge. But when you really sit with it, when you turn towards the feelings rather than act upon them, and you really give them space, 
you realize that the reason you have these reactions in your body is from much earlier in your life. You have the reactions in your body, the same reason all these other people are hardened. It's the same, the same process of, of freezing around experiences from earlier in our life that has us arrive here together. And so for me, I just really emphasized uh, turning towards that rather than trying to help people long time. And it doesn't mean that I avoided helping people, but uh, I'm really skeptical, highly skeptical any time I thought someone else was responsible or had done something wrong or was, and just really kept turning towards myself and saying, well, like, what's here for me? What's here in me that I can use this situation to sort of further my own basic cleansing process, cleansing me of the habits and pain of the past. And so it requires such rigorousness. For me, it required such rigorousness because it was so consistent. It was every day I was having this happen to me uh, all the time. You know, it, it got really consistent because I was, um, my process became very involved. So it, after many, many years, and in 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 imperfectly, I find myself much more open to people. And what I see when I sit with people is I see and feel their hardening or their hardness. But I I have developed an ability, just as I have with myself, to feel deeper into people, to feel what is underneath. Where does this come from? I don't think about this, but I can feel it. Like when somebody says, you know, they feel really upset with me, I can hear this, but I can also stay connected to them and listen deeper and deeper into them. And then I can relate to them underneath that. So you said something else about their, and I experienced this too, there are all these conversations in culture where both groups are really triggered and they kind of bring this intense projecting othering energy. For me, when I listen to these conversations, I'm hearing this energy to the the younger, the more vulnerable, the more disconnected parts of themselves, and I'm looking to actually meet them there. So somebody can often say they're whatever, they're really angry, or I don't care what anyone says. You know, I always think about Eminem. Eminem used to always say, like he wouldn't say it so nicely, but I don't care what anyone says. So people say that, but like they don't, that doesn't feel true. It's like, well, then why, why are you yelling? Right. It's so you feel into people and you start to realize, oh, I can relate to them underneath the way that they present. And so if I realize that they're vulnerable or scared or that they've experienced tremendous hardship, I can start to treat them not based on the way they present, just on the hardness that they present, but on what's tender inside them. And if I can hold that, and I can really keep staying open to them and keep connection, they will come there, either because I suggest that and I help them go there, or they go there on their own, but people will go there. Because nobody really, I don't believe nobody wants to live as a egoic shell, there's really no advantage to it. It's a dead end. And so my emphasis is that we provide the resources for people to live 
deeper inside themselves, where they will be more satisfied, where they will have this transformation, just like you described in your story. And it sounded like when you told your story, you're way better off now than you were before. Oh, yes. But there's there must be some container for the loss of one strategy and the discovery of something better, right? If we've never had connection and safety, then just telling people, just be open isn't going to help them very yeah. much. Right? They need to be reassured. They need to be soothed. They need proof that I'm not going to turn on them, that I really get their vulnerability, that I'm a safe person. And again, this can be established through meditation. There's I talk about this all the time. There are elements of consciousness which are tremendously safe and relaxing that are always available to us that we can tune into. But if you meet someone who's done a lot of work, they are a product of that. They become a channel for that. They're like a human interface to higher consciousness. Mm. I can't believe that we are already at the top of the hour. That's mind-blowing to me. Can I ask, would you be open to coming back and doing a part two and continuing the conversation? Yeah, no problem. That sounds Um, great. Because you have such a wealth of heartfelt knowledge that I would love um, to continue to share with our listeners. But in the meantime, uh, Blaze, how can people find you and learn more about the work that you're doing? Yeah. The first thing is I I teach this in the world. I teach this to individuals and groups. I offer a whole range of options from in-person retreats to online courses. I still work one-on-one with people as well. And um, if you're interested in that, you can contact me. If you want to know more before you sort of commit to participating, I've recorded a lot of the events that I've done and a lot of the content that I create, a lot of my teaching is available on my YouTube page. If you sign up to my email list, you can attend some free events in which I sort of break down or show the the basic elements of how I teach and what I offer people. Uh, And depending on when this is released and when you watch it, you may be able to find me on social media that in the future, there will be little clips of me talking and you can whatever follow me or find me on social media because that's my project right now is to is to take on the world of social media. I love so it. I have a website, uh, blazekennedy.com. You can find me there and you can sign up for my newsletter or, or reach out to me about working together. You can go to my YouTube page uh, where I have a lot of recorded events that I've done, longer form content of me teaching I've been on a bunch of podcasts and and I and you can l- look at there's a playlist of podcasts on my YouTube page and also you can just keep your eyes and ears out on your social media feeds cuz I should be there sometime soon. Wonderful. And all those links I will make sure to put in the show notes so they can find you. Thank you again. This has been an honor and a pleasure. Yeah, I've had fun too. <laughs> 